And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. My friend Doris Kearns Goodwin's presidential biographies are a national treasure, and, and so is she. We had a wonderful talk a few years ago about her extraordinary life and work and the leaders in history she's helped us know so much better. You can find that conversation in the Axe Files archives. But I wanted to talk to her again this week, after the inauguration of President Biden, about the stormy history we're living today and the lessons we might glean from the past. Here's that conversation. Doris Kearns Goodwin, my friend, uh, I can't think of a better person to speak to at this moment um, because historians will be writing about this uh, epic in our history for sure. Um, you know, some of this is, I'm not even sure whether it uh, qualifies as history. It seems almost biblical what we've been through uh, in the last year. But first, thank you for, for being here. Always, always good to be with you. Oh, David, I'm so glad to be able to talk with you at this incredible time, this incredible moment. Um, it is true, we are living in history, and sometimes it's hard to realize that because the days go by, but there's no question this will be written about for a long period of time. And that's where I want to start, um, which is, let, uh, we, you know, let's divide this up into, uh, into uh, periods here, but what, what will the period up to yesterday's inauguration, uh, the four years of Donald Trump, and particularly the last year and the last few months, how will how will history uh, record that? Uh, and I know it's hard to to get the vantage point exactly right in the moment, but you must be thinking about that. I do indeed. I mean, I think in some ways, when you look especially at the last two months, that it has elements of both 1861 in it and 1932. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult. Mm-hmm. We've got crises tumbling on crises, but the menace and anxiety in the Capitol when Lincoln arrived for his inauguration, um, it's, it's remarkable to see, unfortunately, that some of that was met in the fear that we had about Biden's inauguration. I mean, between the election of Lincoln and his inauguration, seven states had seceded from the Union. And the interesting thing is that I don't know there's been focused on enough, and I, I hadn't realized it until I went back and found this part of what he said what Lincoln felt when, when those states started seceding was that this was really a test of whether a government run by the people could really exist because it would mean that the minority has the right to break up the government because they lost the election whenever they choose. And if they failed to stop that, then it would mean that ordinary people couldn't govern themselves. And it meant if they don't accept the results of the election, it's going to prove that they can't. And the whole idea that America is a beacon of hope for an experimental idea that people can govern themselves would be undone. Um, And you do have that sense of menace at his inauguration. Soldiers are in the streets. There's sharpshooters on the rooftops. Um, They've got a plot that they've uncovered, you know, to kidnap Lincoln as his train went through Baltimore. So he had to change, he had to change those plans. And as we know, you know, Biden was going to take a train into Washington and that would have been so in keeping, right? Because he did that with Obama, too. Yeah. So that must have been in a great moment in that first inauguration when that train came in. You and I talked about this offline uh, because I've been reading about this myself uh, recently. But um, it, it was striking to read about that period in 1861 and, and then uh, – contemplate that scene yesterday, I mean, as joyful as it was, it took place in a deserted capital, other than the handful of dignitaries who were there, uh, behind a fence uh, with razor wire and 25,000 troops, uh, which is extraordinary to think about for an American uh, inauguration. Um, And uh, so you're, and I think the analogy is not in any way overdone. Uh, I mean, we were, we're not at war. We don't have a civil war, though we do have people who are, you know, uh, contem- contemplating it, apparently. Uh, hopefully not a great uh, number of people. But, it, you know, we saw them storm the 
steps of the Capitol. So, but you said not just uh, not just 1861, but 1932 as well. Right, and this is going to sound weird, but it makes us happy to think back on where we were in 1933, especially when FDR was inaugurated. To feel happy when we're in the middle of a Great Depression sounds nuts as an historian, except that it's a template for how things changed when he was inaugurated. Um, the, the scarier one about 1861 is we know that not long after this inauguration, a civil war would start, more than 600,000 people would be killed, and that even though it would end in a way that history records as thankfully um, a wonderful thing, that the Union was restored and the North won the war and emancipation was secured, the anxiety at that time was just enormous. I mean, Lincoln later said if he had known the anxiety he would have faced in those first months, he wouldn't have thought he could have lived through it. But then you go back to 1933 and that election that had taken place between Hoover and Roosevelt, and his inauguration, of course, again, is in March. It's that long, long transition that Lincoln had to go through, too. Um, can you imagine if we had had to go until until March for this one? You know, it, it, I'm not sure many of us could have taken it. Frankly, I it think was that's probably right, David. I mean, just the, every day the anxiety. Yeah, it, it didn't arrive a moment too soon. Yeah. And but here's what happens that that becomes, you know, the the sort of hopeful template of what could happen. Although it's in a much harder situation, I think today in some ways than it was then. But the situation in 1933 when he was about to be inaugurated was very dire. The depression had hit rock bottom. There are starving people in the streets. There's no safety net. One out of four has lost their jobs. And the banks were collapsing. You couldn't even get your money out of the banks because they hadn't kept enough currency there as more people were driving their money out. Long lines are waiting and then they bolt their doors. So there was real panic in the air. And Roosevelt himself said he thought the whole house of cards might collapse before he could even take the oath of office. It was that scary about democracy and capitalism. And then he comes and gives his inaugural address, and and he drew a sharp line from that previous administration. The most important thing I think he said was that the people had not failed. It was leadership that had failed to take national action, because that was the problem. Hoover had thought it wasn't a problem that the national government could address. I'm again, very similar to the absence of leadership over the virus that we saw in the Trump administration. And it wasn't so much the famous words we remember, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It was action, he called for. He Mm -hmm. said, I will take action and action now. And then he calls Congress into an emergency session to deal with the banking crisis. And incredibly, in like two days, they pass a bill that will get currency to the banks that are solvent, that just don't have enough money, that will shore up some of the banks, will let other banks go. And the banking crisis is resolved. But even after that inauguration, that speech, suddenly in the country, there was such a change of mood that the headlines read, you know, a leader has come. (laughs) The government still lives because he said, I'll be a wartime leader. I will do what is necessary. Um, And he offered the brutal facts. But he said, if we if if we can act together on this, we will endure. And so that's the hopeful part of what happened there. And I understand that things are more complicated now because you've got deeper divisions in the society. You've got the problem that was raised by the capital attack and you've got years of tribal politics and you've got social media on, on all underneath all of this, which makes this even more complicated and the pandemic. But, um, but the idea that something can change with an inauguration, with a change of tone, with a change of leadership, a change of action, I think can give us hope for today. Yeah, we should remember that the anthem for the Democratic Party uh, when Roosevelt uh, ran was "Happy Days Are Here Again," which is a which is a peculiar song in the midst of a a, a roaring depression. Uh, but uh, that's what he represented. He represented hope. Um, yeah, I want to unpack both of these things because one of the things that's striking about the Lincoln example, and you touched on it when you talked about how he thought about the need to hold the union together, is that, you know, uh, the democracy as an experiment, uh, you know, which he was more conscious of, and I suspect others were more conscious of, the, the country was relatively new. Uh, still, when he became uh, president, there were people who he met on his way to the cap uh, to his inauguration on the on his long uh, train ride from Springfield, who actually had fought in the revolution. Uh, right, and, isn't that amazing? Right. Uh, yeah. So 
he felt like he was the trustee of this experiment. One of the things that's, I think, been really striking to me is how much we take this democracy for granted. Uh, you know, we're so accustomed to, uh, you know, uh, these institutions functioning. They don't always function well, but um, but but they're that they, we've always assumed that they were strong. The rule of law, you know, um, elections, um, you know, the presumption that we vote, we count, and the winner governs, and we all uh, recognize uh, the. Um, you know the the verity of it and the and the and the legitimacy of it, um, and that has that that was to to me one of the signatures of Trump. You know, I mean, I've I've experienced a lot of Republican presidents, Democratic presidents. I agree with some, I disagree strongly with others, but they all saw themselves as trustees of these institutions. Um, he did not. Uh, he. You know, he fundamentally did not uh, believe in rules and laws and norms and institutions. And what we've learned is that there is a fragility to these. You know, we can't take them for granted. Lincoln understood the fragility of these institutions. Um, It it strikes me that we've become a bit spoiled, uh, uh, you know, about them and that and the assumption that we're going to be that they will simply function without vigilance on the part of uh, of citizens and goodwill on the part of people who hold public office. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways you look at the upward progress of the country in terms of voting. I mean, if you have a democracy, then letting the maximum number of people vote is absolutely key, right? And letting them vote freely and fairly and giving them easiest access to voting and we've seen an upward progress in that when you obviously remember that property people could only vote at the beginning and that um, it took a while for that to be expanded. And then it took 100 years. Um, I mean, it wasn't until 100 years ago that women got the right to vote and then not till 1965 that black women got the right to vote and not until 1965 that the vote that had been secured to black Americans after the Civil War was finally made real by taking down all the obstacles that were being put in the way of voting. And so that seemed like a very forward movement. And then what we've seen in these last years are more and more obstacles being put back on voting. And in some ways, the great hope in in this last period of time was that massive vote that turned out in the general election. Young people voting in greater numbers than before, women voting in greater numbers than before. And then once again in Georgia, in a special election, all those people turning out. And prior to that, in the primaries during the pandemic, when people went, those scenes in Wisconsin, when people were risking their lives and to go, you know, to go and vote, it shows that somehow that most fundamental right, the right to vote, which we've taken so for granted, and for so many years, half the people who can vote have voted. That's it. You know, and without that vote being central to who we are as, as a people and understanding if that's our voice, that's our power, that's where it comes from. And maybe all of this stuff about the vote and what's legitimate and not has made us realize that. I mean, this is the silver lining in these last years, and especially, I think, in these last couple, in these last couple months, um, because you're absolutely right. Every president before who ran and lost, or every person who ran and lost, had conceded the election and, and allowed us to move forward so that you e- go even, away. Even the- Richard Nixon. Even Richard Nixon had indeed yeah. so, you know, and history records that as one of the moments when when it, it, it will be recorded that, thank God he did that then. And, and you know, we went through some really disputed elections and 1876 was an incredible yeah. mess. Um, but in the end, um, to, to think that ever since George Washington, I mean, if, if old George had decided you know, that he would stay in after two terms. He might have stayed in until he died. And then we would have had an incredibly different kind of presidency, possibly. Maybe that would be the norm. But instead, he's saying, I want to transfer of power, you know, and then he's there with Adams when Adams takes over. Um, and so there's that sense, I think, of the continuity of it. But most importantly, the right to vote, I think, is the thing that's become more precious in our minds. And if we ever get a system, I think, where everybody who's eligible to vote is able to vote. And obviously the mail-in voting, all these things that were put in place for the pandemic should be secured for the future. 
Yeah. Um, and it, we, why we have just one day of voting rather than early voting. Oh, my God, it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, that is uh, all those things you're talking about were, A, the things that uh, Donald Trump uh, held up as illegitimate. I mean, obviously, they've been that's been disproven again and again and again and again in the courts. Um, those 70 percent of Republicans uh, accept what he said that the election was illegitimate. And you hear uh, from uh, people in the Republican Party, not even, you know, necessarily the Trump people. Well, it's, you know, we don't we don't we want to roll back some of these uh, these voting provisions. Uh, You know, we're not sure about these. And I think you're going to see a big battle ahead because uh, there are there are people and perhaps a party who believe that full participation isn't necessarily uh, in their interest in terms of holding on to power. And so that is one of the, you know, that is one of the big debates that, uh, that looms, you know, you mentioned 65 and I wanted to, uh, uh, as a small child, you were working for Lyndon Johnson then in that period of time. Small child. <laughs> uh, but uh, you, uh, uh, you know, I think often about uh, that that period and, you know, the extraordinary social change that occurred and the leadership that Johnson provided in making that happen. Uh, you know, this, uh, this uh, uh, guy from Texas who uh, did not, uh, was not a progressive on these issues uh, when he was in the Senate, uh, particularly. Uh, but You know, it's been said that Johnson believed that when he signed the Voting Rights Act, when he signed the Civil Rights Acts, that uh, he had doomed the Democratic Party in the South. And he turned out to be prophetic about that. But this issue of race, which courses through our whole history and has, you know, obviously the Civil War that you've studied so, uh, uh, you know, so profoundly, uh, it's still with us. It's still coursing through our politics, and and the and uh, so I'm wondering how you see '65 to now, and what the progressive, particularly on race, the progressive legislation that was passed in the '60s meant in terms of the reactionary response that we've seen and that we're still seeing, and that Trump exploited. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, just to be able to look at 1964 and 1965 um, is to give us hope that the system can work at times. And what you saw in 64 and 65 in the passage of the Civil Rights Act, ending segregation in 64, and then the Voting Rights Act in 65, was you had an outside movement, obviously, in the civil rights movement that's pressuring the Congress from the outside in. And then you had a leader in LBJ who was able to mobilize that sentiment that was coming in from the outside. And what what King and the marchers had done in 64, in the, what had happened in Birmingham and the March on Washington in 1963, which I was at, I mean, that was such an incredible march in 1963. I was an even smaller child then, <laughs> but it was so exciting to be holding signs. You know, I held, I held a sign that Protestants and Jews and Catholics are for civil rights. I'd come down um, from college at that time. And what an extraordinary day that was. And then to be able to watch in 1964, I mean, the great thing that LBJ did is when he first took office after JFK's death, he decided to make the passage of that stalled civil rights bill that Kennedy had introduced that summer um, his number one priority. There was probably no way that that bill would have gotten the two-thirds filibuster broken in the Senate. Um, and that's, that's really what most historians would argue. And so his advisors warned LBJ against it. They said, you'll never get to break that two-thirds filibuster. It'll fail and nothing else will get through the Congress and you'll face the electorate in 1964 as a failed president. Then there's a great moment. They say to him, and you'll split the party in two. They say, you only have a certain amount of coinage to expend as president. You should not expend it on this. And then LBJ said, then what the hell is the presidency for? And then he set to work and he gets, you know, he gets congressmen in groups of 30 to come over dinner in the White House so they all can have dinner in the White House in those first six months. He's calling everybody at 10 in the morning at midnight at 2 a.m. And he and then he starts working on the Everett Turkson minority leader. They have to bring the Republicans to join the Northern Democrats. And he gets them. He gets 22 of them to join the 44 Northern Democrats and bring that historic bill to the floor. 
And that's a moment to really remember because that's an, just that outside movement and the inside power. That's when change takes place in this country. And then you see it again the following year in Selma. I mean, Johnson had not thought that the Voting Rights Act would probably go that year. He had a whole strategic figuring out of Medicare and Medicaid and aid to education and immigration reform and housing. He thought the country needed to have time to absorb the civil rights bill. And as you rightly said, he knew he was probably going to lose the South for a generation, but was willing to absorb that. But he had a deeper hope that somehow the South would eventually see that this was good for everybody, not just for the nation, but for them as well. And they'd begin to flourish and their economy would rebound if it wasn't still stuck in segregation. But then the Selma demonstrations take place and, and he understands that he has to reorder his timing and goes to that joint session of Congress and gives that great We Shall Overcome speech, which I'll be yeah. forever proud that my husband was part of. And then several months later, um, a Voting Rights Act passed. So those were the high point. And then you're right. Then backlash starts. And the riots and the whole way the riots start in the cities, I mean, whether that had to do with any of this, expectations not met, or whether it just happened, you know, these are the ways you look back at history. But then you get the war that's going to be heated up and you get anti-war demonstrations and then you get backlash and you get Nixon finally out of all of this and, and a pullback and then even more of a pullback that we've seen in these last years. So it's a very difficult problem facing this race problem. The, the moment that, that strikes me as, as really important is, and that unfortunately was a moment that never got realized is Lyndon Johnson after the Voting Rights Act passed, after Civil Rights Act passed, he went to my husband, Richard Goodwin, and he said that, you know, these bills are fine and I'm glad they've passed, but there's something much deeper that we're facing than legal actions can deal with. And that's the structural inequities in the society. And that's the years of racism, essentially, that, ha that are still with us. And he said, <laughs> the way he said it, he said, voting rights are important, but it's only the tail on the pig when we ought to be going after <laughs> the whole hog. <laughs> and so, and, he's, and he said, you know, American Negroes have been another nation, deprived of freedom, crippled by hatred, the doors of opportunity closed to hope. And in that speech, again, which my husband worked on, um, and just looking back at it, it's so far far reaching, even for now, it's, it's the kind of speech that a Black Lives Movement person would say, yes, we need that today. It said, men and women of all races are born with the same range of abilities, but that ability is stretched or stunted by the family you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the school you go to, the poverty and richness of your surroundings. It's the product of a hundred unseen forces playing upon the little infant, the child, and finally the man. Freedom's not enough. You can't take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him and bring him to the starting line of a race and say, you're free to compete with all the others and still believe you've been completely fair. Thus, it's not enough to open the gates of, of opportunity. Our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. So, I mean, that, well, what that was an incredible. A, is that incredible? So that's in 65, David. Um, and then, of course, weeks later, the war gets escalated. And um, and it never gets realized. But what he was calling for there, and in a certain sense, the Great Society was really a civil rights program in a lot of ways. You know, the aid to poverty, the aid to education, mm -hmm. a lot of it was canted because he, he really believed in this. And in those last years of his life, you know, when I was with him on the ranch, his one hope was that he'd be remembered for civil rights and not simply for the war in Vietnam. And I think that's now being realized by historians. But it just shows that we take these forward movements and then we go backward and then we have to catch it up again. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I'm curious about Johnson. You've written compellingly about him. Cairo, obviously... Caro has written voluminously and brilliantly about him, um, but from your your personal interactions with him and, and Dick's personal interactions with him, um, what is it that made Johnson, uh, what gave him that insight and what made him so passionate about it? You know, one of the things that happened was that much of his, he was a progressive when he was young. He was a New Deal progressive. And then when he went for state office, he became more conservative in order to win in Texas. And then he gained power and he got more power and he becomes minority leader. He becomes the most powerful majority leader in the history of the country. And in the middle of that, just as he became majority leader, actually, he had what was almost a fatal heart attack. 
And he was so depressed that they couldn't even get him to respond in the hospital. And one day he suddenly woke up and he said, get me shaved. I got to get going. I got a lot to do. And he later said that what happened during that period of time is he thought to himself then, what if I died now? What would I be remembered for? And that's when ambition gets transformed from simply wanting more power to using that power to do something. And one of the first things he did when he got back as majority leader into into full health again was to sponsor a civil rights bill that passed mm-hmm. in, 60, in 57. It was not a very big one, but it was the first one passed since Reconstruction. And then the fulfillment of that came, I think. And then he figured that he was a Southerner and he had a chance, the man of the moment, to do something about this. And as I say, it was the first thing he does when he gets into the presidency after John F. Kennedy's assassination. And then when you pass that first Civil Rights Act, too, and you feel that sense of, my God, this is changing the country, then you want to keep doing more. And even in the last year of his presidency, after he withdrew from the race, fair housing was passed. So there's no question that it was what mattered most to him. And it was so poignant that the very last public speech he ever made was to go to the opening of the civil rights papers um, at his library. And he'd already suffered another heart attack. He was on, you know, he was on digitalis and, and, and he could hardly get up the steps, but he went up there and he said, every, all the civil rights leaders were there. And he said, let's not celebrate what we did in the sixties. It's what we still have to do now going forward. Um, and then six weeks later he died and he reprised, hmm. we shall overcome in that last speech of his. So it really, it strikes me that, again, what matters so much for change in the country is when you get a social movement that is able to connect to a leader at that moment in time, that's able to translate that. I mean, Lincoln was called a liberator, and he said, don't call me that. It was the anti-slavery movement and the Union soldiers that did it all. It's the progressive movement that's underneath Teddy Roosevelt and FDR that already forms in the cities and states before them, in the settlement house movements and in the um, church gospel and then it's the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, um, now the black lives movement. And what you need is that combination of the person there that can translate it, not just in the presidency, but governors and states and city councilors. And then you get change. But that's why the activism of the people is absolutely essential. You know, you mentioned Johnson's, uh, the sort of legendary cajoling and arm twisting that he did, uh, skills that he honed, you know, over his life uh, in the Congress and the Senate and, uh, you know, famous for it. Uh, do you do you think that Joe Biden's 36 years in the Senate, uh, you know, we're in a different time now. You have fewer tools as a president to uh, persuade and cajole. I think Everett Dirksen did the right thing, but, uh, you know, uh, Central Illinois also uh, came away better for his participation in the Civil Rights Act uh, as well because he got some blandishments for his uh, state uh, as a result of it. It's harder to do those kinds of things now, but and, and we're much more divided and polarized now. But do you think the fact that, that, uh, that Biden is a creature of the Senate uh, will make him uh, a more effective um a more effective uh, promoter of of his his own legislative goals? I absolutely believe it will. I mean, I think it's true that things are different now than they were when he first started out. But just even the memory of a time when there was more bipartisanship, when you could reach across the aisle. I mean, it's almost like people have been in a war too long. They don't remember what peace is. So he knows that. And there are certain senators there who were there at that time, too. But it's more importantly, it's his temperament. Um, just as he picks up the phone to randomly call people when something troubling has happened to them or when he wants to say something to them. Um, that's just exactly what Lyndon Johnson did with those phone calls. He would call them at all hours of the day and night. I can absolutely imagine Biden doing that. And I wish that Biden would do what LBJ did to have every single congressman over as LBJ did in groups of 30 um, to have dinner at the White House and then A.D. Bird could take the spouses on a tour and they'd have port and brandy and then the next day he'd keep calling them. Using the White House as the people's house and being, there's so many congressmen and senators who've never been there on private functions. It's an incredible thing. And you've got to believe that that human touch can still somehow break through. And I think he's got the temperament for it. I think he's got the desire for it. I think he likes doing that. And whether or not at key moments it's going to be able to break through or not, but if it breaks through on the margins, 
if you're able to get instead of 50-50 on some of these votes, you're able to get 55 or 53 um, senators. And then that that success will produce power and produce a perception in the country that this is this is working. Um, and I think it's very smart that just as LBJ made this passage of the Civil Rights Bill his first priority, he's making the COVID um, virus his first priority um, because that's and the stimulus bill hopefully would get more than more than those 50 votes in the Senate would get more than we have in, in the more than the Democrats have in, in the House. And then you get the hopefully the economy going back to recovery, which both sides should be caring about. And then you can move on as, as same thing as FDR did the banking crisis first. And then he moved on by keeping that Congress in session to all the New Deal legislation that would be the systemic reform, and that would be immigration reform and climate change and the larger things that you're going to need even more more public sentiment behind you. There is an analogy, obviously, between uh, between uh, what Biden faces and what FDR faced. We're not in a depression, but FDR didn't have uh, a pandemic going on si- simultaneously at the cause of the economic uh, problem. Um, and and so, you know that that necessarily becomes uh, the most most important mission. The thing that uh, FDR didn't have to contend with is this this really virulent anti government sentiment that has built up over forty years. I mean, Trump uh, Trump ran an anti government campaign even as he ran the government. I mean, it was the most peculiar thing to see him oppose the health recommendations of his own government uh, in sort of populist anti-government terms. Uh, but um, uh, but that is another uh, impediment that that Biden faces here. And I guess it's also the reward if he makes this if he makes this these uh, this vaccine program and the anti uh, virus program work, but there is you know this pent up, and these things are all related, Doris. Um, the reactionary kind of forces that have built up since the Civil Rights Act, the anti government movement that has really been in in place since Reagan, uh, at the core of the Republican Party. Um, makes it more difficult uh, because of the erosion of trust uh, that, you know, FDR was like, he was like the Marines arriving uh, for a (laughs) hungry, you know, for a desperate country. And they believed, you know, just as, you know, they did during the progressive era that the government could be on their side. There are a lot of Americans who simply don't believe that. The institution of government is so deeply eroded in terms of public trust. Oh, I think that's really important what you're saying. I mean, I I remember seeing these polls that even during the Great Depression and World War II, something like 77% of the people believe that government would do the right thing almost all or all of the time. You know, then it starts eroding during Vietnam, the credibility gap, um, and that that will be forever um, a big moment when the information government was giving out was different from what was actually happening on the ground. And when people realized that, they lost trust in the government in in a very important issue that was the central issue of the time. And then you double on that, Watergate, and then you get into into these last few years. And then social media is adding in too, right? That's a whole dimension that FDR hadn't had to deal with when he gave his fireside chats. You know, eight out of 10 radios would be turned on listening to the same talk. And, you know, you're not listening to some alternative set of facts. And if you didn't like FDR, you could throw your radio out the window, as some people did. But most people are listening bigger than any other entertainment, anything else on the radio. You know, Saul Bellow said you could walk down the street on a hot Chicago night and just watch people in their living rooms and kitchens and hear his voice coming out and the same voice, the same message. And that's not possible today. So that's added on top of Biden's problems. You know, in some in some ways that... I, I look back to if we hadn't had COVID um, and if we hadn't had, um, you know, the, the economic problem that rose from COVID, I think the analogy would have been for what situation we're facing today, the turbulence at the turn of the 20th century, because it really, really has echoes with what we're facing today in terms of 
Um, you had um, the Industrial Revolution shaking up the economy like globalization and tech revolution have done today. You had a gap for the first time between the rich and the poor. You had people mm -hmm. in the country feeling suspicious of people in the city. You had populism. You had anti-immigration. You had anarchism. Yes. You had bombs in the streets. Yes, and, yes. And, and there was this incredible sense of, of the society shaking apart. And, um, and then Teddy Roosevelt came in. And, and to go back to what we were just talking about, he made government relevant to that problem um, because McKinley and the earlier Republicans had not. But he does it in a way by saying it's going to be a square deal for the rich and the poor, the capitalist and the wage worker. It was a progressive middle, but it was really more tinted toward the progressives. But he was able to deal with the worst exploits of the industrial order and calm that situation down as a result. But until there's faith in government, because it's collective action, that what is government? It's us. If we see right. government as a foreign body, and now that trust in government is down to like 17 or 18 percent, and especially among young people, it was very low. But maybe again, maybe that massive voting, if you vote and you feel like you're part of something, if you get involved in your local government, there's more trust in that than there is in national, more trust in state than in national. Um, somehow without that trust and without that belief that we can make actions that are going to change our lives. And maybe you're right. I hadn't thought about it. But if the vaccine is trusted and if our lives go back to normal, um, then people will know that something was able to be done by acting together. I mean, the, this virus should have been the thing that brought us together and ended some of the tribal politics that we saw, we've been seeing in all these years. But it was made into a political um, division with masks and social distancing. And so mm -hmm. that didn't happen. But maybe the vaccine and its distribution and when people finally get through this will make us know we can work together and something can happen that the government was, was doing. That is the hope. Yeah, you, the social media issue, um, and not just social media, but obviously cable, and basically the ability to silo ourselves in, in uh, you know, these virtual reality worlds where everybody shares our views and everybody outside the silo is alien, um, is a really pernicious thing for a democracy, easily manipulated, uh, as we've seen. Um, and that is a it's a great challenge. I know, I read uh, this morning that uh, you know some of Trump's favorite uh, networks like uh, o, this OAN. Uh, I don't know about Newsmax. Uh, did not cover the Biden inauguration. It was a non-event. Uh, and you know these are sort of uh, you know we luckily we have a comp competitive media environment and and there are a lot of alternatives, but. Um, you know, th there are intimations of authoritarianism there where you just make events disappear, <laughs> you know, that are inconvenient to your... Right, right. Or or you get an alternative view of them. I mean, that's that goes back to the partisan press in the 1850s, you know, yes. where the way you got your newspaper was simply by a subscription Part, to yeah. the Republican newspaper or the Democratic right. or the Whig. And there would be completely different discussions of, you know, Lincoln's in a debate with Douglas and if you're reading the Republican newspaper, he did great and he's carried out on the arms of the triumphant supporters. You read the Democratic description of that same event and he was so terrible that he fell on the floor and, you know, he had to be carried out by his supporters in humiliation. And then finally, national newspapers came in, you know, and then finally you get, even though there's editorials that, you know, that are that can be pretty stinging one way or another, you get facts in newspapers yes. and then you get national radio and then you get national television. Um, three televisions, and then finally it breaks apart, and it's, and and breaks apart into alternative views of the universe with facts, and that yeah. we, uh, this is another. I mean, the, the numbers of it. The more we talk about it, <laughs> the dimensions of the crisis just become enormous. But I guess maybe what has to happen is you just break it down strategically, and and right now the the most important piece of this crisis that he has to confront is to get the virus under control, to get those 100 million vaccines into the arms as he promised, which is a really good thing to make a promise as, and, and then really make sure that you can deliver on that. Yes. And then delivering on that and maybe delivering on a stimulus bill and getting some Republicans to go along with that and on the beginning of the economic recovery, you know, then, 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 then you move to the, then you just move to the next and maybe that brings that number of Republicans, I still somehow don't believe that 77% of the Republicans believe that the election was not fairly won. I, I just, for some reason, I want to believe that there are more Republicans who, who know that that's, that's not true and know that it was fairly run 
and will be and all you need now is to start getting some of them to come over in the Congress as a power of an example. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Well, let me ask you the, about the Republicans. You talked about the Whigs, you know, and in their most optimistic interpretations, you hear people, particularly people who are unhappy with the direction of the Republican Party, fallen away Republicans and so on, talking about the Republican, you know, the Republican Party going the way of the Whigs because it's divided. And I mean, what? There is this civil war going on within the Republican Party. These two parties have been quite durable. Can you see that? Can you see the, the, the an unraveling between the sort of populist wing of the party going one way and I mean I can I can see it happening and then the question for you know for the country is 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 which wing is larger? I mean there's a presumption right now that the Trump base wing is much larger. Um but I don't know how permanent that is. I mean, I've, I've never been able to figure out, and you'll know this better than me, David, when you see these polls. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just can't imagine that the, a lot of the people that we know in corporate America that are Republicans and that are responded to these various crises in positive way, that they're part of that base. I, I don't think so. Um, there's conservative people. There are people who are going to have different policy viewpoints than Democrats, but who are willing to argue with them. Um, I just The big question is, you know, is what's going to be the size of those wings. And they may be different as, as I do think they, they might, they may split apart. You know, there's even talk I heard yesterday that the Trump party will become like a third party. <laughs> um, it'll become its own party. Um, and, and then the yeah. battle will be, you know, not just for the soul of America, it'll be for the soul of the Republican party or the soul of what that second party is going to be. Um, and and there is an endurance. I think you're right. I mean, I, I I doubt that the Republican Party is going to disappear, but you know, will will it become you know led by people like the Lincoln Project people, um, the establishment people, the people who believe in in the possibility of of having true arguments in the Congress about policy and about taxes and about regulation? Um, and that would be a healthy thing for us. I mean, because everybody needs that kind of of of, of to and fro. Um, and what will happen to, to the people who are in the base party? Is it possible that if Biden moves eventually toward infrastructure and toward, you know, understanding the problems of mobility that are lacking in lots of areas, that if you can deal with rural poverty as well as, as what's happening in the cities? Yeah, I um, think this is essential. You know, one of the things about Doris, about Biden, and I want to talk to you about him and yesterday and his speech for a few minutes, is that... Um, you know, he always had a little chip on his shoulder when I worked with him, and I admired the chip he had. Uh, he, you know, he he was someone who steeped in Washington and had great respect for the institutions, and he surrounded himself with, you know, very good people. But he always also he 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 was acutely aware that he was from Scranton, that uh, he went to a state school, that he uh, you know was not the uh, law law. Um, a, a, editor, law review editor at Syracuse, where he went to law school. And he, he, he felt um, like there were people who were too clinical, you know, who the Harvard and, and, and Yale and Princeton crowd that are so dominant in, um, in the upper reaches of government were, were removed from the experience of everyday people. And in the meetings that we had, he was always the one who said, you know, that's all fine and well, but how's that going to affect my old neighbors in Scranton? I mean, the people who have lost their home or have lost their jobs. And I always thought it was such a powerful role that he played in sort of grounding the discussion uh, in the experience of people. And I think one of the reasons that he did so well in this election uh, is that um, he was not someone who could be caricatured as an effete you know, left-wing socialist, you know, he was not someone who looked like he wanted to coddle mobs or, uh, you know, he just not did not fit the caricature uh, that Trump created. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that his sensibility, sensibilities about working class people and the dignity of work uh, will create an audience for him 
among my neighbors in rural Michigan, for example, um, uh, where I where I live some of the time, and um, you know, th- so that that remains to be seen. This this speech uh, that he gave yesterday, um, it was not um, it wasn't Rooseveltian uh, in its language. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Lincoln. Um, it was Biden, you know, it was, it was plain spoken and, but I thought in its own way, incredibly powerful, uh, and, and, um, met the moment. And I was wondering what your, what you thought as you were listening to his speech. You know, I think there's no question that what Biden was able to do was to just show his authenticity and to maybe believe that you trust in his word, which is the most important barrier that he had to get through yesterday. And I think the idea that um, he spoke in simple language, it was more like Roosevelt's fireside chats than his inaugural address. I mean, Roosevelt's big addresses were filled with soaring language with lines that you will remember. But when he spoke to the country on the radio, um, it was very simple. He would say when people would bring him a long word, no, I want that. I want that in four letters. You know, somebody wrote to him, we want a more a draft. We want a more inclusive society. And he changed it to, we want a society in which no one is left out. And, mm-hmm. and that's in part because it, it, it fit the moment also yesterday, because if you had that soaring language that produced applause, you wouldn't have the applause there yesterday because of the socially distant crowd. So he really was speaking directly to people as you would in the radio or in television or virtual, as he did at the convention as well. So I think the the whole tone of it being a, a sort of a, a conversational speech worked for him. And I, I think that, you know, there were several moments that, that really mattered to me. I mean, obviously, when he took the look out at the Capitol and he was able to see where Martin Luther King had spoken or where the women fighting for the right to vote had been met by blocked you know, by the men at Wilson's inauguration who had stormed into their parade. And then he looked over at Arlington Cemetery to the heroes and just recording that those moments when change had taken place, you know, from physically where he was. Um, but, but maybe most, you know, most powerful of all in some ways was just the idea when he said that um, his mother had often talked to him about tolerance and putting yourself in other people's yes. shoes. I mean, that's that's exactly what you're talking about too now. I mean, he... He comes from an anti-elite background and, and somewhat of the demo- – we, you and I have talked about this, but the Democratic Party and the perception of many people seems elitist. Yes. And I think when you well, look – Well, I don't think – yeah, I don't think it's just a perception, you know, and I say that as someone who obviously is closely identified with the Democratic Party. But I think too often – you know, too often we – I've said this about this virus, Doris. We, we, you know, you and I, we can sit in our studies – and Zoom, uh, we're not right. worried about. Uh, we don't have to leave our home to to make a living. We don't have to, um, you know. And and you know, I was shocked at the end of the year when, uh, you know, I learned that I had had a good year. Why? Because I have stocks, mm-hmm. uh, and the mm-hmm. stock market did well. And meanwhile, half the country is under siege, you know. And um, and and yet we moralize and we tell people it's your moral responsibility to stay home. It's your moral responsibility Very to well cl- shut down your business. And that is a that is something that we ought to think about. It, we need climate action. We need it. It's urgent. It's a, it's existential for the planet. But if you're someone who extracts energy from the ground and that's how you support your family, well, that's an existential issue too. And so, what are we doing for them? And with them, uh, so that they feel part of this and not the the uh, victim of it. You know, I mean, I just I think there's a and I think Biden gets that at a higher level than many many people uh, in the Democratic Party. I think so too. I mean, I think it's his lived experience. You know, the interesting thing is that people considered his age a liability, and I think in many ways it's it's going to turn out to be something positive. Because it means that there are lived experiences that he's had that he's he's processed over time. You know, those experiences of his father losing his job, obviously the ones that we all talk about of the losses in his life between his yes. wife and child and then the loss of Bo later on. When he talked about fate um, in the inaugural address, it, it really struck home in that sense. 
Um, and I think what happens when you've been through all those lived experiences is that some people come through those kinds of adversities and are broken by them. You know, others simply return to their normal way of life, but still others, and this is always an important understanding in leadership, still others are able to reflect on them and they come out with wisdom. And there's a certain sense in which you do have a feeling now that his ambition is different than it was when he was running those first three times. Yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You know, you're, you're run just as Lyndon Johnson, too. You know, you're just running because you want to run. You want to be president. You want the power. And from his vantage point now, you know, not only did he say he was stimulated to get in because of Charlottesville, but feeling that he has a chance maybe to do something about the problems, it gives a calm inside of you. It gives a different kind of... Um, ambition that you're going forward with. And I think that was projected in the inaugural speech, too, when he talked about faith. Um, yes. So there's, there is a sense that he may well be, you know, we kept talking about him before him as a transitional president, but he may have the chance to be that man of the moment. I mean, he's yeah. got humility, he's acknowledged his errors, he's got empathies, you know, in, in a very clear way, people understand resilience, ambition. And the interesting thing even about the team he's put together, even though they may seem to have gone to some of these best schools right now, you look at their family backgrounds and lots of them came from, from those more difficult circumstances. And that was made clear when they had their nominating statements. And I think that's really even more important for people to understand that it not only is a diverse team representing the faces of America, but their life experiences have given them and their parents' life experiences have given them a broader understanding of the country because you yeah. need that, that co collection of people around you as well that, um, and, and that's, that's going to be the key. I mean, can you reach out, you know, to the people who feel that their mobility, I mean, forgetting the people who are, you know, that you may not ever be able to reach, in, um, but they're the people. Yeah. He, he and, and Biden was clear yesterday that he didn't, that we, we can, we can get enough of them, you know, I mean, he, he may, you know, never, you're never getting a majority, you're never going to get 100% in this country, or in any country in a democracy, there's always going to be, they're always going to, there's always going to be an opposition, but, you know, he's trying to put together a coalition of the willing here. Right, uh, right. And, that's possible. I just want to interrupt you for a second and say, because I don't want to lose the point. You, you, you know, you wrote about Lincoln that his character had been forged by experience that raised him above his more privileged and accomplished rivals. He won because he possessed an extraordinary ability to put himself in the place of other men, to experience what they were feeling, to understand their motives and desires. And it strikes me that there's some applicability here. Yeah, I, I know. I think that's right. We f we forget that part of Lincoln's appeal was was the having split rails you know having come from um having come from the country the farm at a time when cities were even beginning to develop at that point and having not had that you know that privilege that when you look at Seward or Chase or Bates the other people had gone to you know had had gone to higher education had had a priv much more privileged background than he had had led a more expansive life and yet and he brought that idea of just Abe into, you know, because he becomes Lincoln, you forget about, I mean, you know about the experiences that he had as a child, but that was part of his appeal. That's the important point that I think you're making right now, that people saw in him somebody that they were or that they might, you know, and then he had become something very different through educating himself and everything he'd done on his own to get himself. He'd never even set foot in a college until he, until after he was a lawyer, I think, which he made on his own. So, yeah, um, and I think it's just the, the capacity for empathy and the thing that Biden talks about so often, which is uh, treating people with dignity and respect, everybody. And, you know, I think part of that has to do with faith as well. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we, we that, that, is a, that is an enormously important. I mean, it may, it may be the most important quality that is needed in our country today. I yeah. mean, to the extent, you know, that. Teddy Roosevelt warned that democracy would be under jeopardy if people in different sections and classes began regarding each other as the other rather than as common American citizens, that they were so far removed from the other people's feelings and passions and points of view that they couldn't even understand them. You know, and that's what's happened to us now. And, and, and that's what empathy is. It reaches across. So I think some people are born with empathy. I think Lincoln was. You just watch him as a child and other kids are pouring hot coals on turtles to make them wriggle, and he just recoils against that. There's one time when he's walking home with his friends, and there's a man who's had too much to drink who's lying in a puddle, 
and it's raining out and he goes back to carry him home, worried that he might drown and the other kids go moving on. But most people, I think, even, even if you're born temperamentally with some empathy, your life experiences allow you to create more. And that's by putting yourself in positions where you can understand and have to listen to other people. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt later said that the great thing about being a politician, and I'm not sure it's, it's as true today, but was that you, you, you experience things that he and his privileged background would not have experienced. He goes into slums to investigate what's happening when they're making cigars in tenements. He's police commissioner and he sees what it's like to live in those slums at night. He goes into factories where there's child labor because that's part of a political job. And then if you've got that human feeling, it gets developed and you really can understand more. That means that politicians have to get away from where they are and travel, you know, the, the country. I mean, that was the great thing Teddy Roosevelt did. He took a train and went around the country. So he saw the parts of the country that had not supported him. And he stopped yeah. in all these small areas. And I, I think that's something that Biden could do so well again and be on, be on trains once we can get back to normal life. Yeah, but empathy yeah. is key. You're, you're exactly right. Before we go, I, I want to ask you about uh, about about your husband. Uh, you lost him r- relatively recently. Another great American and someone who had great impact in this in that very tempestuous and and and, and important period of our history in the in the sixties and 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 uh, and seventies. Um, first of all, how are you? How are you doing? And um, and and talk a little bit about his his legacy. I know you you've got these incredible this incredible raft of historical documents that have his imprint all over them. Speeches that he wrote that are will live forever. And um, so so I just want to check in with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what happened is that in the last years of his life, he did indeed start going through this archive. He had saved everything, David. I mean, it was crazy. There were 350 boxes that went with us from one house to the other, went to storage when we didn't have enough room in the houses. Finally, the house we had, it was big enough that we could bring it, but then it was put in the cellar for a while. And then finally, he decided to start going through it. I think in part, mostly it's a template of the 60s because his career, you know, began in the late 50s um, when he went to Harvard Law School, and he was there with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In fact, when we went through the boxes of the 50s and what he was doing as as editor of the Law Review and then clerking for Justice Frankfurter, we had all that stuff. But meanwhile, comes out a picture of the Harvard Law Review people, and there are two women on the side of all these white guys, and one was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I said, oh, my God, look at this picture. You know, we just found so much in there, and I just got mad all over again because she couldn't even get a job in New York, you know, and he's meanwhile is courted by people all over the country, um, and then finally chooses to go for Frankfurter. But the extraordinary thing that he did, and the boxes reveal it, is that instead of doing what he could have done after Frankfurter and gone to some big law firm, he ends up investigating the rigged television quiz shows by taking a job in the Commerce Department and then going to work for young John Kennedy, you know, just as you as a young person went to work, too, in, 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 the, in the public service. And, and he wrote speeches for John Kennedy and created the Alliance for Progress, um, was about to be made the special consistent on the arts on the night that John Kennedy was killed, mm-hmm. and then went to work for Lyndon Johnson and was a major proponent of the Great Society, not just writing the Great Society speech or We Shall Overcome or Howard University or Johns Hopkins. The most important thing was just really moving those bills through and the messages and the whole process. In, and he loved Lyndon Johnson during that period of time. But then he left. He left in the fall of 65, became very active in the anti-war movement, and that burned his bridges. He was called a traitor from, you know, for having left and for having spoken out against the war. Became very close to Bobby and Jackie Kennedy. Um, actually dated Jackie Kennedy for a period of time. We have pictures on the wall. We have letters from Jackie Kennedy. And more importantly, there's letters from Bobby and all sorts of closeness between those two. And then when Bobby didn't run, he had just went waltzing up to McCarthy and he joined the McCarthy campaign. One of the few professionals up there. And then when, when Johnson withdrew from the race and then Bobby got in, he felt that he couldn't be against his best friend in public life now that Johnson was out. And McCarthy completely understood and said about him, you know, he's like a professional ball player. He'll go to take his place on the next team and he'll pitch perfectly, um, but he won't give up the secrets of the team before. <laughs> and then he's with Bobby when Bobby dies. And he had worked on his South Africa speech before that and the Ripples of Hope speech that's on his grave. 
Um, and then um, then he goes back and goes to McCarthy, and he's at the Democratic Convention, and he's involved in the peace plank, and he's with the students all over again. And then finally, he goes to Maine after Richard Nixon wins. But that boxes that he has with all the letters, the memos from JFK and LBJ, McCarthy, and he's, he's at every moment in the 60s. So it made him really happy to be going through that because there'd been a sadness about the war having undone the progressive movement that he cared so much about. That's why he didn't want to open the boxes. And then finally we did in those last years of his life and he wanted to write about it. So the big decision that I'm making now is is to, if I write about it, um, uh, it'll be in my voice. So it'll be a double memoir of what I'm going through as well as him. So I have to research myself right now. Yeah. So it, it's been both a wonderful thing to be immersed in this, but it's also the hardest The hardest thing is I think I moved from Concord to Boston. The house was too big. There was, you know, it, was, it just was crazy to stay there by myself. And I moved into a condo here in Boston where my son Joe is only two floors away. And then COVID hit. And, and I think somehow the loneliness becomes much greater. I'd been running around. I had a book tour, you know, doing lectures. And, and, and when you're, by yourself as, and as close as I can be to Joe and I see him every night for dinner with his wife and child, they're still not Dick here. And there's much more right. of a sense of, of realizing what's been lost. And you just keep looking at other people who have other people to go with this through. And I miss him a lot. So yeah. it, to be honest, it's, it's really harder than it was in the first, in the first year or so I've got to say. Um, but meanwhile, all the archive and what I'm going through brings him to life every day if I can figure out how to do this and, and, and spend the next couple of years of my life on it. So that's the big decision I'm trying to make right now. Well, knowing your work and you've brought so many people to life, so many vivid portraits of great Americans, this one obviously different uh, because of your relationship and, and your own sense of loss. But if you do it, it will be grand <laughs> because nobody tells authentic stories of great and interesting people and life better than you. Oh, thank you, David. We'll we'll see. Anyway, it, it's just it's 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 an extraordinary story, and the '60s is an extraordinary story because that whole decade contains within it everything we've been talking about today. In a way, you know, there's just moments of great triumph. You know, the hope that JFK promised, that sense of you know, people being idealistic and wanting to be in the Peace Corps, wanting to do yeah. something for the country, the civil rights movement, you know, coming to its great moments of triumph. And then, of course, you know, the the, the war and the backlash and the and the riots and, and the election of Richard Nixon in the end, um, so that it has all the, the possibilities and maybe we can learn from the mistakes as well. And it's such a dramatic decade. So that oh, it really is gosh, a template yes. of the six. That's, that's what his papers are. Yeah. Everything is there because he just happens to be at every place at every moment. He's sort of like the Forrest Gump of the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, except uh, he Forrest was sort of an accidental uh, participant. Dick was a uh, valiant provocateur uh, in a very good way and uh, an and, and author of history. Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. He never lost that progressive impulse and that desire to keep moving forward. No, that it, it, re it really makes me proud. I mean, I knew these things, but when you see them go through the boxes. It was really our last great adventure to be opening these boxes and finding these treasures within it. You know, there's a telegram. We were talking earlier about the Howard University speech. There's a telegram from Martin Luther King that I pulled out. And he says to LBJ, never has a president spoken more profoundly on civil rights ever. <laughs> and yeah. then you think, oh my God. And my husband was part of that, you know, and Lyndon Johnson was part of that because Lyndon Johnson wanted that speech. So those are the moments again, when, when something collides, a speech writer that's there and a president who wants to once that. Well, you know that from Obama as well. Yeah. You know, just in the few interactions I had with him, um, the stories that he told were incredible. And uh, so whatever you decide to do with it, I just want to thank you for, on behalf of everyone, uh, for the gift of your incredible body of work that has just brought history to life and taught us lessons that we need to glean from it. But uh, more than that, I just want to thank you for your friendship, which is the greatest gift of all. Me too with you. I'm so glad we become friends, and I'm glad we could do this today. Wow. Thanks, Doris. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, 
Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.